Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Welcome back, adapters. On today's very exciting episode, I have on Dr. Matt Hauer, a demographer at the University of Georgia. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. It's really great to be here. Yes. So I was thinking about this a bit. We, we chatted a little bit beforehand and you're at the University of Georgia and you got your PhD at the University of Georgia, right? Yeah. And you got your undergrad degree at Florida State University. I did. Yes. So I was born in Gainesville and I went to University of Florida. And so it's like if someone designed you in a petri dish of how you could be my nemesis, you like are that perfect <laughs> anti-gator. There you are. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely right. Both Florida State and Georgia, both big rivals for the University of Florida. So are you actually a Bulldogs fan or a Seminole fan? I am a Seminole fan, but this season is a, is a bit tricky. So uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's good that at least one team is winning. All right. I, I had to get that out there. And so what is a demographer? What, what exactly do you do? So demographers study the uh, populations and, and they study population processes and population dynamics. There's only three ways that a population can ever change. These are kind of like ironclad laws. And that's what demographers really study. And those, those, what we call components of change, those three components are births, deaths, and migration. So you're born, you die, and in between, you move around. So that's really what we study. We study fertility patterns, we study mortality patterns, and we study migration. So you're at the Carl Vincent Institute of Government. That's just a, a famous institute there. And are you a professor, a researcher? Or what, what sort of what you do there? Yeah, I'm faculty here. Okay. And so are, are you working with students on some of these topics? Or are you, are you able to kind of just do things on your own? Yeah, some of them are with students. The, this stuff on climate change has primarily been my dissertation now. All right. And so here you are. This is America Daps. This podcast is about adaptation. And so I was introduced to you by Jesse Keenan and you did a paper and I think it was it in the spring or was it last year? Uh, so, I, yeah, I had a, a paper in the spring. Right. It was a really, I think, provocative paper. And that's what I, I brought you on. I wanted to talk about and it actually got a lot of attention. So I wanted you to let instead of me describing it poorly, the title of the paper, where it was published, and just briefly, kind of just in a general way, what was the paper about? So the, the paper was titled Migration Induced by Sea Level Rise Could Reshape the U.S. Population Landscape. Uh, and this is actually a, a follow-up to a paper I published last year that was titled Millions Projected to be at Risk from Sea Level Rise in the Continental United States. So these are these two papers are kind of one and two, or, or sort of like an A and a B, or maybe a, a, a main paper and then a sequel. And so with the paper on the migration paper itself, it, it's really looking at how if people have to move because of sea level rise, where are those people likely to go? Where, where, where are those people going to end up? And the reason why I say this is a one-two punch is because you have to do two things in order to actually make this estimate or, or to, to kind of do this analysis. You have to not only know sort of where people are likely to move through. So to use a plumbing analogy, you have to have the pipes to figure out where the water's going to go and, and where that's happening. But you also have to know how much water is going to be flowing through the system. So if you think about the water that's in your house, it's really easy. It all goes out through your main pipe. But imagine you don't have a main pipe. You've got a bunch of different pipes that all go out through different areas in your house. Well, the amount of water that's coming out of your kitchen versus in your bathroom those are going to change the amount of water that's going out of the different pipes throughout your house and, and going out elsewhere. So it's the same kind of concept here. 
So I, last year, I estimated how many people are at risk to sea level rise in the U.S., the whole U.S., or, or at least the whole continental U.S. And so that gives us the volume of water that's likely to flow through the system. And then this paper in the spring with the migration is then taking that volume of water and figuring out where those people are actually likely to migrate to. Okay, so you came at a, a specific number. I mean, and I want to dig into the paper a bit more, or just at the, in the guts of it, but the number, I think 13 million people are potentially going to be impacted and might have to move. Is, is that right? Yeah, so that's if we have six feet of sea level rise by the end of the century. We'd have about 13 million people that would be at risk of, of moving. And so these are these are the people that would be living underneath the uh, the high tide line, in essence. So their houses are underneath the high tide uh, by the end of the century. So this paper actually got quite a bit of media attention. I was digging around and just if it was showing up in all sorts of areas like Mashable, Reuters. And it's just I mean, it, for a researcher, I'm sure you were thrilled that, OK, look, I just published something in a journal and then the media took attention to it. Did you have a sense that this paper was going to generate such, I guess, widespread media attention? I kind of felt that way when I was doing the analysis. When I was doing the literature, that at the time, there was not a whole lot. Well, for the migration paper, there was nobody that had looked at, at destinations in this manner. No, up, up to this point, there was sort of this really broad way of looking at migration. So people are going to move short distances or people are going to move for economic reasons or they're going to move near family. These sort of just very or they're going to move from rural to urban. Right. These sort of really they're. They're really broad, but they're kind of hard to get a handle on and, and answer a question of sort of how many people could we expect to see that might move into our community because of climate change. So when I when I published that paper, I had a feeling that the migration paper would be pretty big just because I, I kind of have a sense of the literature pretty well. And, and I knew that this is I, I felt like this was a big finding. And I felt like it was exciting. Uh, the other paper, the one before then, the millions paper. I knew right away when I found that number, I was, I knew this was going to be big. I, I just had a gut feeling that the paper was going to, to, to be very exciting. It is exciting when this kind of thing happens with your paper and you're really excited as a researcher that the media has picked up on it, but it is extremely nerve wracking. Uh, I'm very much a junior scholar. And so having a paper that was in Mashable and Reuters and stuff, it, it caught me off guard. It was, <laughs> it was a it was a very wild ride. <laughs> okay, so I've always been curious. And what, what was the journal again that it was originally published in? So both of these papers were published in Nature Climate Change. Okay, and so it gets published, it, it gets accepted. And did was that I've submitted papers to journals and it, it, just garbage. It just they take a chainsaw to it. But was there a lot of back and forth? If you're doing something a little bit new and it was sort of provocative, did you you know how that? As the reviewers are looking at your paper, were there a lot of questions or did they just sort of take, oh, wow, OK, this seems pretty rock solid? No, oh, no, there was a lot of reviews and there was a lot of uh, really good feedback from the reviewers for both papers. We made a tremendous amount of changes in the papers. So, yeah, it wasn't just sort of like, oh, this is great. Rubber stamp. No, it was a very difficult process. And I, and I, I, I hoped throughout the entire review process that the papers would get accepted. But. There's no guarantee that they were going to get accepted throughout. So it, it wasn't just smooth sailing. 
Well, as an aside, I, I think of the scientific method and like how people submit papers and this notion that climate change scientists are faking results. It's scientists are the cruelest people to each other and the whole <laughs> journal process itself. I mean, you have to have thick skin. I mean, they annihilate these things. And so the notion that there's all this fake science going through anyway, as an aside, it's, it's a pretty rigorous process. So, okay. You got it published. And I'm also very curious. Did you take it upon yourself to say, all right, this is really important information, this is really interesting information, or did are there people out there in the media that are reading these, I'm not going to say obscure journals, but most journals, your average person's not really reading. So how did, how did that come about? How did it get that attention? That's, that's a really great question. I thought about this quite a bit, actually. So the, the first paper in 2016, the millions paper, where we're actually estimating the 13 million people. The journal included a, a press release with the paper. I knew right away that it was going to be just totally insane when the paper came out, just because there was there was going to be a press release that went along with the paper. So in the embargoed period leading up, I think me and the co-authors did something like 30 media interviews leading up to the actual publication of the paper. So I had a I had a good and so you know, and then it's in the New York Times and and then it's in it's it's all over the place. It's in National Geographic. So it just kind of snowballs from there. But it was the life cycle in the media for the first paper was more like an explosion. So it just it came out of nowhere. It blew up. Uh, it was in a lot of different outlets very quickly. And then about a month later, it was over. <laughs> and so there was like it's like, great. I wrote this scientific paper that a lot of people paid attention to. And it was in the media. And now it's done. The second paper, the migration where I'm actually migrating the people affected by sea level rise is more like a slow burn. Uh, the journal didn't include a press release. So I, I did one media interview in the lead up to the during the embargoed period. But then I think Mashable published a paper or, or an article about it. There was a couple other ones that published a paper about it. And it slowly built up uh, over the month where more more and more outlets started to call me up and ask me about what these results meant. And, and then, you know, Hurricane Harvey happens. And so people go, wow, this is crazy. I wonder if these people are going to move. And this is like climate change. And so new a new round of reporters started calling me and asking about this. And then Maria hits Puerto Rico and a new round. And so um, the life cycle of the migration paper has been uh, a lot longer than the life cycle in the media, at least of the first paper where we're just looking at how many people are at risk to sea level rise. And I, I think that if, there's a couple reasons why. I, I think partly because there was no press release with the second paper, but I think also the 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 millions paper where we're actually estimating how many people is kind of narrow in scope. We're answering a really simple question. It's really easy to understand. The number is pretty big. And then it's just sort of like, that's it. Whereas the migration paper, it has a lot of other aspects that connect to a lot of different areas aside from just sea level rise. And so it spawns a lot of additional questions about what this actually means for extreme heat or maybe wildfires in California or major hurricanes uh, that hit, you know, a, a U.S. territory and so on. So I think that's it's been a it's been a really interesting journey and to be, especially to be able to compare the two papers. Is this your first podcast promoting it? 
Uh, this is my first podcast, yes, but it's not the first uh, uh, radio show I've been on about this. Good, because, I mean, I feel it's a good chance to dig into this, because I have all these questions, and I thought both papers were very interesting, but to me, the second paper, especially with what I'm talking about here with adaptation, is a bit more relevant, and that's what I kind of want to dig into. And, you know, my listeners who are out there doing applied adaptation, I think the implications of that second paper are really important. And so, yeah, let's jump into that. I have some down-in-the-weeds kind of questions, and I'm going to have links to the actual paper and some of the more newsy kind of articles. People like sometimes to read that to get a better understanding. But there were some great graphs, some charts associated with the movement of people. And first off, sea level rise is this primary driver of how people are going to move. That's the, the sort of the basis of your paper, this impact. And that in itself, you make a statement by choosing certain models. And so that 13 million number where people are going to move is, as you said earlier, based on a six foot sea level rise. I mean, how do you decide? And I know there's all these different models out there, but there's a spectrum of, well, it's safer to say two feet by the end of the century versus six feet. And with the other authors that you worked with, where did you think that you were really going to emphasize and what SNL uh, sea level rise number did you, I guess, really want to come to, and why did you come to that? We had originally estimated a one-foot rise by 2100, a three-foot rise by 2100, and a six-foot rise by 2100. So in the first paper, we had actually looked at all, essentially, the entire range of scenarios of sea level rise by the end of the century that we that we could see. But the the one foot got thrown out by the reviewers because the the vertical accuracy of the elevation data, in which case we're modeling on, is one foot. So you don't actually know if one foot of, of if one foot of elevation is in fact one foot or if it's actually zero feet. So we had to unfortunately throw out the the one foot results, but we we tried to model the the full range. In this in a migration paper though, we I chose the six foot uh, because it, in the end it doesn't really for the migration aspect of it, it doesn't really matter what uh, rise we're actually looking at, or it ultimately doesn't really matter because it doesn't change a lot of the migration patterns that we'd be experiencing. So migration, the, the sort of really classic way of thinking about it is in terms of push-pull dynamics. So you have a push that pushes people out of an area. In this case, this would be sea level rise, but it doesn't have to be. It could be the Irish potato famine in history or it could be persecution, or it could be war, or it could be severe drought, or it could be you lost your job, right? So there's these push factors that push you to move or spur you to move. And then there's pull factors, which is on the other end, why you move to a certain location. So you might move because it's nearby, or you might move because you got a job there, or you might move to a location because you have family there, or you move there because there's less persecution, or, you know, all the different number, all the different reasons that you could come up with as, as any given reason as to why you move uh, from uh, move to B. Right. So we know you're going to move from A, location A. But why do you choose location B as opposed to location C? And so when we talk about sea level rise, those pull factors, the reasons why somebody might move to a given location are, are unaffected by sea level rise. So if somebody's going to move to Atlanta, Atlanta is an attractive destination regardless of sea level rise. Austin, Texas is an attractive location regardless of sea level rise. Those operate independent of the push factors. And choosing like a six foot rise 
it, it doesn't really affect the it, it affects the numerical results, but it doesn't really affect the the overall finding. It doesn't really affect almost anything else. And in choosing a lower rise of sea level rise, all you would really see are just fewer numbers of migrants. For simplicity's sake, I went with six feet. It's just it, I guess I could have chosen three feet as well in terms of the model. I want you to help me explain. You have these papers you have by 2100. You hear that a lot when you talk about climate change. And so you have 13 million people. You have these numbers. And people have a hard time digesting. Like, And you, and you have some good graphs in that paper. But, okay, between now and 2100, it's you have 13 million people that are potentially going to move. And so is there a graph that sort of says, oh, well, 2070 is it where you have this peak in that in that hill there, and then it starts to go down, and ultimately this total number of 13 represents the next 70, 80 years. How can people visualize, because it's not 2100 where 13 million people automatically move. It's a process that's taken over time. And I think that's really hard for people to kind of get their heads around. And that's why they dismiss, well, that's 2100. That's way out in the future. Are there ways for us to visualize that better? For almost any of the large infrastructure projects that go on, they have timescales that are on par with, with this, uh, or at least relatively long timescales. So if you look at a water reservoir, for instance, so you're preparing for water withdrawal rates to ensure that houses have you know, clean drinking water or, or industry has access to water and so on. Those are using very long timescales because the capital that's required to build a water reservoir is so large. So you're building in the assumption that there's going to be X number of people that this reservoir will be able to serve over 50, 60, 80 years. If you look at a lot of major roadways, we're expecting a similar thing, that people are going to be using these roads for a very long time. If you look at subways and, and light rail, again, it's a similar kind of thing. If you look in New York City, if you look in Boston, those subway systems are really, really old. If you look at the interstate system, those those are largely on, on old um, roadways that they've kind of built up and they just kind of get wider over time. I, I can't imagine that any of the major interstates in the U.S. are going to not be used a 100 years from now, unless we're in flying cars or something like that. So almost all of the infrastructure challenges uh, require similar time frames. I mean, there's people that, that buy, you know, mid-century modern and things like that, or they buy bungalows from the 1930s. And so you see housing stock that's, that's on par with this kind of time scale. I know 2100 seems like it's really far away, but there's a lot of challenges that we have to confront today while we think about either how we adapt to sea level rise, such as building a seawall, or if we're in a landward area, the type of, of, of infrastructure that we actually need to accommodate our future populations. I should know the names of these charts, but you have one chart where on the one end you have like Texas and some of the receiver states, and then the other end you have the states that are losing population. And it just most of the states are kind of like in the middle with barely a blip. Maybe they gain a, few, a bit of this population. But um, could you explain that? What are really some of the receiver states and which what are the big losers when it comes to this? I don't know if I would call them like winners and losers. Right, right. That's <laughs> probably terrible. But you, I guess more people, less people. Yeah, yeah. So – to kind of situate these, what I'm about to say, we, we know a couple things. One thing we know is that people are most likely to move short distances. And at the same time, at least internationally, we know 
because of climate change, most people are likely to move within country. And so if you think about if you think about the U.S., it's really it's kind of like 50 countries in a way. It's not, but it kind of is at the same time. So most of the migrants are actually moving within their own state. So if people have to move, they don't appear as as a net as a net gain or a net loss in terms of population, but they're still moving within the state. So the biggest the biggest gainers are Texas is is one that, that pops out a lot, and it's really a lot of Austin, it's a lot of Dallas, and it's a lot of the the very exurban parts of Houston. And then you have uh, places like Georgia, places like North Carolina, and so on. Those are the areas that are likely to see the most amount of in-migration or net migration. Uh, that would be the ins minus the outs due to sea level rise. On the other end of the scale, you have Florida, which could lose 2.5 million residents uh, by the end of the century due to sea level rise, as well as Louisiana, which is just over half a million as well. Now, for Florida and Louisiana in particular, you, you have to understand that Florida has 6 million people that are at risk of sea level rise, but it's it's only likely to lose around 2.5 million. So you're looking at a lot of people that are moving within Florida um, as opposed to leaving the state. Um, and Louisiana is about half a million, so or um, a million people that are at risk. So it's only losing about half a million residents. I find that very... <sighs> Hard to believe that, and, and I know part of this model is that people move in areas of proximity and there's these social infrastructure that it's going to attract them to move to certain areas. But like the idea that someone is going to move from Miami to Orlando, it just, it, it would seem Florida is literally falling apart and are people only going to move an hour or two inland? I mean, the, you think of like the tax base and all these things that are going to kind of be unraveling in Florida and it, is it, I mean, is it likely that they're really just going to move just close by? Well, yeah, of course. Of course they're going to move close by. And there'll be people who move from Miami to Broward County as well to, if they get, if they have to move because of sea level rise. There'll be people who will make small incremental moves. It's, there's a, and there's a lot of reasons why that would happen that way. If you own a small business or you own a business, that's going to be really tough to uproot if you have to move, you have to move your house because of sea level rise, but your business might be fine. Or if you have a job that's a well-paying job or you have community ties and your family is all located in, say, Miami or or in St. Pete or something like that, or New Orleans even, you, you're not going to – the odds are that you're not going to move very far. You're probably going to move, but you're probably just going to stay within the same kind of general area while just trying to protect your family and yourself. So, yeah, I mean, I, I know it seems weird. You're like – well, everyone needs to get out of Dodge, right? Everyone needs to just go, go, go away, go to a safe spot. But these changes are very incremental. And so we'll see these sort of incremental movements as well to Orlando or to, you know, sort of these more, these, these localized inland areas without these very large jumps. Like I doubt people are going to be moving from Miami to Kansas City, or there's going to be a lot of people moving from Miami to Kansas City. Um, Orlando is still pretty close, so you're still within the same localized economy, or, or for the most part, the same localized economy, um, without having to really go that far. Well, one of the reasons people moved to Florida is this beachfront and that 
accessibility just to those sort of uh, natural systems. And I just, I'm even trying to visualize as you lose that beachfront as it's creeping in. Is it beach? Is it sort of marsh? Um, yeah, it, I think some people are studying re- literally how does, as you lose those landscapes, it's, it's probably not going to be some beautiful sandy beach that slowly moves kind of northward. It'll probably be sort of pretty messy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I hear that a lot. I hear that comment quite a bit that, well, I guess one day I'm going to have beachfront property. But your view is going to be of your neighborhood. (laughs) Good luck scuba diving in one foot of your of your street. Like that does not sound very good to me. (laughs) Or just all those super fun sites from those gas stations, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, you looked at sea level rise, and uh, and I, I'm sure you appreciate it as you went through the process as you submit this paper, but then you hear the sort of criticism that comes after it's published. And first of all, I'd love to hear your comments. I, I, who's, he's the famous scientist, Kevin uh, – he does sea level rise stuff. Um, I'm blanking on his name. Anyway, he just said your sea level rise model was too aggressive. What's Kevin kind of – to Bareth or something like that. Um, I should know this, but I, I'm curious. How did, did you have to respond, kind of in real time, on why you use these th- this information, this data? I, I didn't see that. Actually, I didn't see that criticism about using too too aggressive sea level rise curves. Like he was he was going. I I should say that. <laughs> yeah, I think this was in the. I don't know if it was the Mashable or the L.A. Times might have had a story on it, but he was quoted sort of at the end. And he, Kevin Kenneberth, he's a famous, uh, I think, oceanographer who does a lot of sea level rise stuff. And I think he was saying maybe a foot or two is the more appropriate number. And so anyway, you haven't seen it, but I, I, he's kind of a big name in, in these areas. And I'm like, for you, as you put this out there, of course, people are going to start throwing rocks. And, you know, as you respond to those things, I, I guess you have to defend it. So, yeah. So. If you look at the linear trend of sea level rise, it's really only about a one foot of sea level rise by the end of the century, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of one to two. And what the and the IPCC, the last report, they were looking at on the high end, two meters of sea level rise is considered to be very much on the high end. They were the median value in the last IPCC report was right around three feet or one meter um, by 2100 as well. But the there's been a lot of papers that have come out that have basically shown that the IPC numbers are probably too conservative. So there's there's two different approaches to doing um, sea level rise modeling. You have what are called semi-empirical and you have these sort of contribution approaches. So the semi-empirical, you basically look at the time series of sea level rise and then you extrapolate it forward. And bear in mind, I'm, I'm grossly simplifying this. So there's a very good chance that it's it's not all the way correct, but this is pretty good. This is pretty much how it works. They extrapolate the trend, and depending upon the curve that you choose, you could end up somewhere around two meters. So the semi-empirical were coming up with two meters, the semi-empirical models were coming up with two meters right or, you know, up as early as 2009, 2007, and so on. So that's one of the reasons why the IPCC was finding two meters on the high end, because these semi-empirical models were showing that. But the contribution models, those are where you're looking at you know, the, the ice melt from Greenland and the river discharges and the heating of the ocean and, and all these different factors that actually contribute to sea level rise. Um, those models were much more conservative coming in around around one meter by the end of the century. But in uh, in 2016, there was a, a paper that came out in Nature where they used a contribution approach where they better captured the Antarctic ice sheet and Greenland. And they came up with a contribution approach of two meters by 2100. And right after that, James Hansen 
published a paper showing also that two meters by 2100 is likely and that we might actually end up with more than two meters by the end of the century, that the models are even more conservative than we think. And when they do the statistical analyses on the IPCC models, they basically conclude that the scientists themselves are producing too conservative of the models. So to say that, that, that a six foot curve or a three foot curve is too, is too aggressive. I mean, that's, that's, that's almost up on the modern science that we might end up with this much amount of, of sea level rise. Well, I certainly appreciate it because even if you're in the planning stage, you're supposed to look at extreme ends. And if that's even a plausible number, then you've got to factor that in. And as you, if you look at the infrastructure and such. So I think that was very useful that you did that. Well, yeah. So that's, that's really great too. That's a really great uh, observation. So if you build, if you build a seawall or something, any kind of adaptive infrastructure to protect against sea level rise and you choose a three foot wall. And so if sea levels are below anywhere below three feet, your wall will be 100% successful, right? You have a 100% success rate. But the moment the water level goes to 3.1 feet, your wall is now 100% failure because <laughs> the water is now overtopping the wall. So if you, if you want to build an adaptive infrastructure and you want to use hard armoring, that's what we would call building a seawall, then, you know, planning for six feet means that you're now ac- accounting for that underlying uncertainty within the lifespan of that wall, if that makes sense. No, it does. Okay. And so to me, again, back into the model that you have this movement of people, let's say Florida to Texas or these other areas. Now, the next version of the model, or did you already factor this in? Like these areas that people might actually resettle to, there are other climate change impacts and obviously drought being one of them or heat stress. How can you build that into the models? Like, well, people aren't going to move to Las Vegas because they're going to have, be under severe water shortages. And so that's not a likely area to receive them. It, was that at all built into your model or is that something you'd like to do next? Yeah. So that was not built in at all with the model. Um, and that's a bit, that's a, another layer that is very difficult to, to do right now, given the current state of the literature. Um, sea level rise is, is, for the most part, relatively simple. The migration response is relatively easy to model. Your house goes underwater. You probably have to move. It's, it's, I mean, that's a, it's pretty straightforward. But with some of the other climate stressors like drought or extreme heat or water availability, or or wildfire even, those ones are much harder to look at what that's going to do for human population settlements for a couple, for a, a very a, a large number of reasons. One of which is that we just we well for one thing we live at a lot of different temperatures. There's people who live in very hot temper temperate uh, climates and there's people who live in very cold climates. How many people live in live in open water climates where they're underwater? Not very many. So. Trying to incorporate heat stress or something similar into a destination decision becomes relatively difficult to to do, or we have to model a lot of different things. There's a lot of different decisions that might go into that for the other climate stressors, and we we simply don't know yet. We know uh, that sometimes extreme heat leads to out-migration, so people are moving away from extreme heat, but then if you look in the U.S., the areas that are experiencing the most amount of growth are hot areas. We call it the Sun Belt. So Florida, Arizona, Texas, California, 
So right now we have people moving to hot areas. So that's that's tough to incorporate uh, into a model given historical trends, because the historical trends show the opposite of what we assume is likely to happen in the future. And part of that is because we haven't observed the temperatures that we know are likely to occur in the future. So Baghdad is projected to be one of the hottest places on Earth by the end of the century. How do we know what the response is going to be? We have no we, we don't have any kind of comparison comparison right now to actually draw from for model building. So I think that adding those kind of layers and adding that those aspects into a migration model would be fantastic. I think it would be awesome. I think it's I think it's exactly where we need to go next. I just don't know if we're quite there yet, especially because migration doesn't just require modeling the origin, but now we're talking about modeling the destination as well. And so we're not just saying, is climate change going to cause migration? Yes or no. We're saying, what is my, what is climate change going to do to the destinations that people choose? And so modeling that blows up the, the modeling parameters. It blows up the modeling space and makes it just truly massive to try and to try and undertake. So that's that's an area I definitely want to go in the future. And in, in the in case of, of the paper right now on sea level rise, I, I had not seen somebody model the destinations of climate migrants. I had seen people say it's it's going to cause urban to rural or these sort of broad ways of thinking about it or yes, climate change causes migration or no, climate change won't cause migration, but never, not a whole lot looking at the destinations. And I think that's that's the big contribution is that we, we should start thinking about climate change instead of will it or won't it spur migration, but think about it as well as where is it going to spur migration to? I'm just curious, if you, you look at a hurricane and it's almost an accelerated version of sea level rise. You, I mean, hopefully there's lessons to be learned. And you look at Hurricane Katrina and what it did to New Orleans and the spread of people after that. And I guess a, a couple questions here is, was there any demographic information that you used from the Katrina experience to build your model? Where did all these people end up and did it reaffirm some of the predictions that you made? I mean, did that at all play a role in what you were doing? Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely am I'm very familiar with the Katrina literature. Katrina is a bit so hurricanes are a bit unique for a number of reasons as far as comparisons. And, and most of most of them are these are these fall into there's two kind of two categories of, of climatic events that are associated with sea level rise or sorry, of climate change. But, but also just broadly in terms of climate, you have uh, acute and chronic or what they might call fast onset and slow onset. So fast onset and acute is like a hurricane, a tropical cyclone. It's an earthquake. It might be a wildfire. Um, it might be something like that, right? A very quick, a tornado, something that happens very quickly, uh, but then kind of goes away. So a hurricane hits, Houston floods, but then the waters recede. You know, a, a tornado hits, but then it's gone and you can rebuild. An earthquake happens and then it stops. And again, you can rebuild. But then we also have these slow onset or these chronic environmental changes. This is drought, right? This is temperature increases. This is sea level rise where the, the, we have a raising of the floor that creates a new normal. So you can, you can adapt to higher temperatures, but usually what your adaptation is going to come in the form of air conditioning. 
you can you can with sea level rise you can adapt to sea level but it's going to con it involves the conversion of dry land or habitable land into essentially uninhabitable water it, it's tough to rebuild from sea level rise because the land is is, is not there anymore it, it's gone so when you look at this in, in comparison to a rapid event or a fast onset or or an acute event like hurricane katrina the migration response comes in two forms. You have those people who go, I lost my house. I'm moving. I'm not coming back. That's it. I'm going to move away and I'm, I'm probably not going to go back to where the hurricane was. My, my business is destroyed. I'm packing up. I'm going to greener pastures. But then you, those are what, what I'm going to categorically call permanent migrants. The, the sort of people who are permanently migrating. They're, they're done. They've packed it up. They're going away. But then you also have evacuees, people who are temporary migrants, the people who are just trying to get out of the way of the storm and they're going to go back to, to where they, to where they had moved from. And so these two, these two groups of, of, of people, they have different responses. They have different destination responses. The permanent migrants, they're going to move with economic opportunity. They're going to move to better locations. They're going to move maybe closer to family and friends. That's how they're going to make that decision of where they're going to go. The evacuees, they're trying to get, they're trying to move short distances, really close by. I'm, I'm just going to go a short distance uh, because I don't want to go very far so I can move backwards so I can come back to where I, where I left from. And so there, with something like sea level rise, with something like drought, when we look at these chronic environmental changes, I don't think there's going to be any evacuees. You're not doing a temporary evacuation from sea level rise. You're, you're not you're not temporarily escaping the drought uh, only to move right back or, or the extreme heat, as opposed to something with just, you know, flood your home and you got to go somewhere else before you can kind of come back. So after Katrina, there was a lot there. The U.S. data system is not very well equipped to handle uh, a data collection to separate out these two populations and, and their decision making and their destinations of when they move are very different. Obviously, right. One is typically very much short distances is the primary thing, whereas permanent migrants, I mean, it has short distances, but mainly it's it revolves around increasing your economic opportunities and family and so on. So we are really ill equipped to look at that. So when you look at Katrina, you see a very strong concentration of people moving very short distances. Baton Rouge became the most populous city in Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina mainly from people moving from New Orleans to Baton Rouge. But then you also had a lot of people who left New Orleans and they moved to Cook County, Illinois, and they moved to Atlanta, and they moved to Los Angeles, and they moved all across the country, this sort of, right, as they call the, the diaspora, the Katrina diaspora, as people moved pretty far from nearby areas. And so when you, when you add all these up, it looks like on its surface that People are moving to different locations than they moved to prior to the hurricane. But that's only because you have this evacuees and permanent migrants put together. When you look at other environment, acute uh, environmental changes in the U.S., you find that the migration pattern pretty much holds constant because there's not as many evacuees that it generates. So you end up with people moving to the same locations that they have uh, prior to events. Okay, and so this hurricane, and I know the hurricane is a different situation than long-term sea level rise, but can your model 
I mean, it, it's almost like this real time experiment. Could your model help predict what might happen with people in Puerto Rico? Could you sort of say, looking at it now, and then, and I know it's hard to get funding for these sort of longer term studies, and saying, okay, five years from now, where are these people? And my model helped us predict where they might end up. I, is it even capable of that? I mean, to me, that'd be very interesting if you could sort of use it to look at this real time experiment. Yeah. So, it, and, and I, it's really interesting because a lot of my demographer friends are really interested in this question, irrespective of whether or not they study climate change. They, they, they see what's happening in Puerto Rico. They see what's happening in Harvey and they start going, Hmm, especially in the case of Puerto Rico, they're, they're going, where are people likely to move to? And so if you look at where Puerto Ricans settle in the United States, where they actually move to, it's really not that surprising. You end up, you see a lot of people in Florida, you see a lot of Puerto Ricans in the Northeast and in Chicago. So if, if Puerto Ricans are going to be moving out of Puerto Rico because of Maria, Hurricane Maria, where are they most likely to go? Why would you move to Kansas or why would you move to Nebraska or why would you move to Colorado or wherever if there's not already family, friends and Puerto Ricans in those areas? You're likely to resettle into an area where you can integrate relatively quickly. And this is what we know from just in general about migrant networks, that you have these ethnic enclaves that will pop up, at least initially, that plant a seed. People move into those ethnic enclaves before they start moving elsewhere further down the line in in greater amounts of time, which is why you see California, you see New York, you see these places like Chicago and so on as these gateways. But then you see these secondary cities start to emerge like Atlanta with its Korean population or uh, in Dallas and Austin as well, where you see very large Asian populations that have begun to emerge that are not necessarily connected to Los Angeles or San Francisco. So the same thing would happen, I imagine, is going to happen after after Hurricane Maria, where we'll start to see Puerto Ricans migrate into places like Miami and Orlando and Chicago and New York and Boston and so on before they start to move to other associated destinations. And so I've had a number of colleagues and friends on Twitter that, that have started posting maps about where people, you know, where are where are Puerto Ricans in the United States? Because this is going to tell us at least give us an idea about where people are likely to move to because of because of the devastation in Puerto Rico if they move. Hey, everyone, just checking in, taking a short break here. Please consider supporting the podcast. The world's best and brightest adapters are coming on the podcast to talk about these important issues. Check out the donate page on the website at americadapts.org. Now back to Matt. I have a few more questions, and this is getting more into the, I guess, applications of of this research. And, you know, I just think of like Puerto Rico. A lot of it's sort of no brainer. If you look at where existing populations of Puerto Ricans are, like you just described, people are likely to move there. But if policy makers do have a better sense of these things. If the allocation of resources are more strategic, that is a useful thing. And if your model can help with that. And I guess that's my question too, is that I have an adaptation coastal planner that's listening to this. What kind of decisions can they make today? How does your research help them allocate money and help the their elected officials make better decisions? I mean, do you have, I guess, some useful advice for them on how they can use what this research that you've come up with. Yeah, I mean, for the for just in general about sea level rise, this is a really great way of, of identifying potential uh, population growth hotspots where you don't necessarily want them to be. So if you if if you're in a an area that has a, a, a you know like coastal Georgia is a lot like this. It's got a very salt marsh ecosystem. 
if you're building, if you see that and uh, the salt marsh is really attractive for development, for population growth, maybe that's a good idea. And, and it's very vulnerable to sea level rise. Maybe you, you zone that properly and you say, you know, maybe we shouldn't build in this area because maybe there's actually an area that is on higher ground that's nearby the salt marsh that's very attractive that would be we can be close to the marsh you can have coastal development and at the same time have resiliency to sea level rise so paying attention to these localized growth trends is really really critical and really important if you're if you're actually doing a lot of these long range planning like don't don't put a school in a in a threatened area that's likely to go underwater in the lifetime of school like that just seems like a uh, very easy advice to do. If you're looking at the migration aspect of it, part of it is is going to involve being attractive to coastal migrants. So offering the sim- maybe similar amenities or playing up your similar amenities. Um, people love, you know, why do people live in a coastal community? Is because they have the water nearby as well. The water feature is, is extremely attractive for why you live in a beach town. That's why people live in beach towns. But there's a lot of there's a lot of areas that have lakes and rivers that also have water features. And while it's a little bit different than the beach, it still can be pretty great and a major selling feature to make sure that you can say, hey, listen, I know you're moving from from the beach, but we've got this really great lake and people have boats on the lakes and, and, and they go water skiing on the lake and they go swimming or they're going tubing in the river or you can kayak and you can play up your natural amenities to make that to make that transition at least easier to swallow for a lot of coastal residents. And also think about the long range strategic planning and think about, are we going to have the infrastructure to accommodate climate change migrants and and integrate them into our system without stressing our infrastructure, without, without stressing our roadway infrastructure and our commute times start to go up? Or if we have enough um, affordable housing for these different populations, or maybe we should think about mass transit and think about how we can have better transit options for this anticipated growth. So it's, it's not so much for the migration aspect, thinking about where do we put something as it is in the coastal areas. Don't, or it's just, it's don't put something, right? Don't put a school in this threatened area. Don't put a, a, a residential neighborhood in this threatened area for Inland areas, it's more about the strategic planning process and thinking long term to get ahead of these changes. So that way you don't wake up one day and you go, man, we should have planned for this 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Or somebody had the foresight 50 years ago to plan for this and and we're better off. Our community is better off and stronger because of that. Are you attempting, and I think some of the media as they explain your paper, but I would imagine like a local planner would love to have some sort of, you know, two or three generic slides that kind of distills what, what you're saying within this paper. Are you doing any of that sort of outreach or sort of applied tools or a toolkit that, uh, the right people could get, could use and explain this to, especially elected officials that they're working with? I, I haven't, I haven't developed anything that's like that, but that's actually a really, really good idea. But I think one of the things that really drives home these results that are, are really easy is that I provided the results for every county in the United States. So if, if you live in an area and you go, what does sea level rise mean to me? You could just go look and you don't even have access to the paper. It's the supplementary materials open for everybody. It's, it's not locked behind journal subscriptions. You can then just look for your city. You can look for your county and say, oh, man. This means an initial, you know, 30,000 residents or 50,000 residents or 
250,000 residents, or my community is projected to lose that many. Maybe we should think about this and actually have a constructive conversation about what we're going to do for our community. So that that's definitely one way that's, that's very accessible is that I, I provided easy to interpret results for every single community in the U.S. No, that that's fabulous, like downscaled information. And it's, it's, it's almost, I think, kind of funny, like somebody in Wyoming or Kansas at a commission meeting can look at that county information and their slide is like, what does sea level rise mean for us? And you've got some information that actually makes it somewhat relevant. Mm-hmm. So, ah, that I'm sure their commissioners would give give them the once over. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's great. So, I, I want to wrap this up. This has been a fantastic conversation. I guess my final two questions. The first is that you've sort of alluded to it, but I mean, what's next for you? Is there part two to this paper, and when might that happen? Yeah. So part or part three. Yeah, I definitely have a part two and a part three. In this suite of papers, we looked at how many people are at risk to sea level rise and where are they likely to go? But we didn't ask, and we didn't try, we didn't try to, at least in these papers, ask who, who is at risk? Are we talking about old people, young people, rich, poor, black, white? Like, like what are, what are the, who are we actually talking about? Right now it's just a head count, but it doesn't actually get into the nuance of, of who is actually at risk. So I think moving to, to answer that question, is extremely important. And we also, we semi-tackled this, but not very, not in a, in a lot of uh, depth, which is when. When are these effects likely to occur as well? 2100, while, you know, we can think about infrastructure and how our infrastructure is built on long-time horizons, we don't think in long-time horizons. Breaking this down into into more digestible time chunks, I think, is is also an, an area that we're moving to as well. We're, we're looking to answer that. So we're really looking to get uh, how many, where, who, and when. So answering on adding on the who and when questions. Maybe these efforts are underway, but just my background in conservation. Researchers will come out with a report and there will be these implications and then the conservation community or the NGO community will start developing tools and resources that they can share with a broader part of the public. And I, and I really hope that's kind of happening with th- this research. You know, the implications are, are really big. And so I think, Carl Vincent, you guys have a pretty good outreach arm there. I don't know if there's folks there that do outreach and are looking at your research and sort of finding opportunities. But uh yeah, that would be great if there are more toolkits associated with this. Yeah, I totally agree. We'll talk to Lori Fowler. You know her over at the uh, School of Ecology. She's a- uh, I do. Yeah, actually, I do. She'd be all over. Yeah, this. she'd love. She get. <laughs> all right, final question, and I ask this of all my guests. And if you could recommend, and if you have a connection, that's even better. A future guest for this podcast, who would you recommend? That's a really oh, so I do. I have a great. Uh, I don't know if he would agree to come on, but I think he would be absolutely wonderful for it. The the mayor of a or he's a former mayor of a city in, in coastal Georgia, the city of Tybee Island. He was very pioneering. His name is Paul Wolf. Um, and I've, I've recommended him before, but I don't know if anybody's ever contacted him. And I don't know how willing he is to speak to the media about this. But he actually institute or instigated a sea level rise adaptation plan for his local community. And Tybee Island has about 3,000 permanent residents. It's, it's, a, it's a beach community. It's really great. And their, their adaptation plan won a, has won multiple national awards for its, it, its, its foresight, its content, the way to think about this, and the way that they went about making the plan as well. He's, he's really awesome. 
he's got a great radio voice too. <laughs> well, you know how funny a coincidence. I was invited to come down to a conference in Georgia. I don't know if you've heard of the group 100 Miles. They do coastal yeah. work, and so they're doing a conference in January, and they invited me to come down and lead a, a session on climate change. And I wonder if he's going to show up to that. If he's so involved in those issues, he might actually show up, and I could maybe. I have to check into that. Maybe I can just do a, a side recording with him. Yeah, how funny. I, I, I'd love to set that up. I, I also, another one, if, if you can't, is a former colleague of mine here at here at UGA who's now at Stetson University in Florida, Jason Evans. He's done adaptation plans in Key West, in Satellite Beach, Florida, in Tybee Island, Georgia, in St. Mary's, Georgia, and Hyde County, North Carolina. So he is really on the forefront of being in in the weeds of actually doing adaptation planning with coastal communities, he's extremely knowledgeable. He's really he's really really great. Oh no, that sounds great, and that diversity of locations would make for an interesting sort of contrast of how he went about his job. No. Yeah, I mean you have Key West, which is very large, almost a hundred thousand people, I think, and then you have Hyde County, North Carolina, which has you know eight thousand people. So it's it's and it's very very rural. So. Yeah, Jason is wonderful. All right, great. All right, Matt, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've learned a ton, and and I hope people out there, these are the sort of the the research that's really just going to drive, I think, a lot of decisions at the local level. And so I appreciate what you're doing. But uh, thanks for coming. Yeah, on. thanks for having me. Really wonderful talking with you. And hopefully we can stay in touch as you know you generate new research and whatever, and uh, think of the podcast as a form to kind of share information. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll be dropping you an email uh, right around Thanksgiving, depending upon how a certain Saturday after Thanksgiving goes. Okay, I look yeah, for, forward to for it for Florida right. State in Florida. <laughs> oh, that's what you mean. All right, you know the Gator. I've you know. It's, I think the Seminoles and the Gators, the whole we, we've written off the seasons for both yeah. of them. It's just mediocrity. So <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay. On that note, thanks again. And for all you adapters, till next time, this is America Adapts. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap to this episode. Thanks to Dr. Matt Hauer for coming on the podcast, even if he is a bulldog. What a fascinating discussion. 13 million people displaced by sea level rise. That is a huge number. I look forward to seeing what else Matt does in this area of research. It's going to be a critically important area as planners and elected officials desperately seek guidance on what sort of investments they should make today to avoid the worst of these impacts. I also hope people out there doing adaptation at the state and local level know that these resources are out there and it's worth reaching out to learn more. Okay, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Dabs and ask to join, and I'll prove you right away. It's a chance to hear insider info on the podcast and to see what other listeners are sharing on the Facebook wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. I love hearing from you. Seriously, I just heard from someone from Switzerland who's a supporter of the podcast. It was a thrill hearing what they do and what they get out of the podcast. You know you're out there. Thanks for contacting me, and it's really the highlight of my week, so please... Give me an email. It leads to sometimes really cool things. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Okay, check out the website at americadaps.org. And all this information is in the show notes, especially the link to the donate page. All right, adapters, keep up the great work, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>